we are living in a world that is extremely more complex and complicated. So our lives have been halted regardless of any geography as a result of growing inequalities, political, social, economical, and so on. So we live now a moment of deep shift, if you want. And I think that decolonization, decarbonization, social and environmental injustice, gender equity, these are all terms that belong to our daily vocabulary now. So we have to face and address these issues from both a personal and professional point of view, whatever our profession is. I think the general waking up that I'm seeing around me in so many different parts of society people from all walks understanding that this is here. It's not a future threat. It's active now. We need to get smart about addressing it. And there's a deep approach. A lot of people are asking themselves, how can I be of service? What can I do at this time? How am I going to be? And the more climate job boards and networking communities and sites of bringing people together to do that work of figuring out how they're going to go on their climate journey while infusing it with a sense of joy, with a sense of how can we make this fun, right? How can we reshift so it's not just focusing on the negative, but really focusing on what we want to be building and what is abundant and the better life that we're working towards. All of that gives me an honest sense of hope. You know, I, I see that reflected. I see real people doing real things and changes in their life. And I feel it within myself. And all of those things are just great. It's possible to have high well-being, high meaning, high engagement with things that matter and that are purposeful and ways of cultivating, nourishing emotions around all of those things in an increasingly turbulent world. We can do that. So even as the systems around us change, if water becoming more scarce, let's say, or food scarcity, climate disasters ramping up and migration crises, there are lots of things that we can do within ourselves to stretch our capacity to be caring and continue taking action for the present moment. Circularity, of course, has existed in nature for a long time. Actually, nature circularity is by evolution. There is no plan, there is no liability, there is no preferences. It's simply the cycles such as marine tides, CO2 and water cycles, plants and animals. And basically, by evolution, the best solution wins. Also, there is no waste. That material becomes food for other animals or plants. Now, early mankind survived by depending on these local natural resources, sharing a non-monetary chaotic symbiosis dominated by nature. Then this poverty or necessity-based society changed when humankind used science to overcome shortages of everything. In other words, the Anthropocene with nuclear energy, petrochemicals, metal alloys, we became independent from nature, but we overlooked the fact that these new man-made anthropogenic resources or synthetic resources were unknown to nature, so nature could not deal with it. And that means that we, mankind, has to take responsibility for it. Actually, awareness doesn't help. We are on the campaign to produce a desire for that transformation. Information is useless unless it's empowering. And of course, it has to be factual. If it's not factual, then it's going to be found out. And it also has to be relevant because otherwise it's irrelevant. But if it's just relevant, it actually may just be counterproductive because if people see it as relevant but not empowering, they will use their brain to fight it. So that's why I think awareness campaigns don't work. We can only 
work on motivation, helping people to find a greater desire to get there, say, yeah, that's what I want. A sense of agency, that they say, I can do something about it. Also, a sense of curiosity, because we really don't know how to get there, you know, eventually. So it takes a bit more than just awareness. And that's what we learned a bit painfully, obviously, over the next 30 years. Because in the beginning, we just thought, oh, why don't people just measure how many planets we have compared to how many we use? And once they see the number, it would be very obvious to them. So we were the first to start and still are, I think, the main accounting approach to compare directly how big human activities are compared to what the planet can renew. So kind of saying, yeah, as a minimal condition, to be able to persist, we cannot use forever more than what we get back from nature, what nature can renew. I think water is taking a backseat. And personally, I feel water is the messenger that delivers the bad news of climate change to your front door. So in the work that I do, it's heavily intertwined, but it's taking a back seat. There are parts about water that are maybe separate from climate change, and that could be the quality discussions, the infrastructure discussions, although they're somewhat loosely related to climate change and they're impacted by climate change. That's sometimes part of the reason why it gets split off because it's thought of as maybe an infrastructure problem, but you know, the changing extremes, the aridification of the West, the increasing frequency, the increasing drought, these broad global patterns that I've been looking at with my research, that's all climate change, just 100% climate change, 100% human driven. And so it does need to be elevated in these climate change discussions. With coral reefs, it's just one animal, the coral, which is a foundation species. So you impact that and you impact so many other species. You know, you go to a coral reef and it's just teeming with life. You know, everything from turtles to small fish to all the crabs and crustaceans. And it's all dependent on that coral. So once that dies, the whole system shifts to a sort of an algae dominated environment. And it finds it very, very difficult to recover. So it's so important that we protect these foundation species. We forget how important coral reefs are. We think they're a great place to go for a snorkel while we're on a summer holiday, but we don't think of their value. This is one of the most valuable ecosystems on the planet. Something like 25% of all marine life live on coral reefs, and they provide the coastal barriers that protect our shorelines and sort of break up that wave energy. So there's all these benefits, and they are a great place for finding sort of drugs for it's anything from pain relief to cancer medications. You know, there are so many different species with such strange behaviors and adaptations that we can learn so much from them. There's no such thing as completely clean energy. We use that term a lot, but it's not really true. We have low carbon energy, lower carbon energy, but any kind of industrial system has requirements for materials and processing, and nothing's completely natural in the industrial world. If we can electrify transportation, I think we can clean up the grid, and then I think we can deal with these life cycle issues in a way that's responsible, but it'll never be zero. That's impossible. Cities are really the living lamps of everything that we're doing in terms of energy policy. It's extremely important that whatever we are putting forward in terms of policy, in terms of legislation, if it is not embraced by citizens in cities, in the local level, the best policies will not serve any purpose if they're not really taken up by the citizens. We should all learn to be sustainable in our daily life and find the beauty in what proves to be sustainable. And sometimes we really need to start shifting our way of looking at things because sometimes sustainability, which is a priority right now, 
doesn't really coincide with, let's say, the cheapest solution of the best economical solution. But now we have to decide the priority. So the priority is now sustainability. We have to start to think about that. In the climate forest, well, there's absolutely no roads. There's absolutely no towns, no electricity, no flowing water. I mean, you are with the indigenous group. They're all still in their long enclosed. I went to about eight different ethnic groups. They all spoke different languages. I couldn't understand what they said. They couldn't understand what I said, but we got along well. So I went rowing for six months, and it was absolutely like going back into the 17th century. It was fantastic. I mean, you move out of the Western world. You're months away. If you drown in the river or disappear, you disappear. Nobody knows where you are. There's no communication whatsoever. And it is a fantastic feeling. The only thing I missed was somebody with me of my a friend, culture, something like that, to share the emotions of the things you saw, just to look at this marvelous thing together. This marvelous people, landscape, world. I have a granddaughter who's just going into high school now, and she is filled with idealistic thoughts. And she's optimistic. She's a person who is both in love with art and in love with science. She's vivacious and has many friends, and just everything about her seems like life is beautiful, and I'm going to be able to do this and that. And of course, when I talk to her, I do everything I can to encourage this kind of openness and optimism and belief in herself and her ability to do worthwhile things and not to be too concerned about is she going to be able to have a job with enough income to be where she wants to be. She's not thinking on those levels. And so how it is to perpetuate and strengthen that kind of spirit and hope that it can be validated by giving this generation the opportunity to do things. Because I believe that if she and people who think and feel like her were really given opportunity to be influential and to do things, that that would have a, a tremendous shift in the way the world is going. She doesn't think in terms of orderly profits. She thinks in terms of human happiness and human good, human fairness and the beauty of nature. So the one and a half degree issue is very acute. We know now that if we don't limit warming to that level or close to it, we run the risk of really serious damages to natural systems and to a lot of vulnerable countries and their territorial integrity is at risk and so on. So I think it's gonna be very, very close. We know from the physics of it, that if we got onto an emission pathway, which involves a 50% reduction in emissions by 2030 and getting carbon dioxide emissions to net zero by 2050, then we would limit warming very, very close to one and a half degrees, right? So the big question now is, will we do it? Will the world actually make those emission reductions? So I think that's a really big challenge for everyone now is to really make sure that governments and their industries get behind this target. We started 30 years ago because there was very little data. So we made suggestions as to the health outcomes we thought would be affected, like vector-borne diseases, crop failures, water availability, sea level rise, increasing disasters related to climatic extreme events, and obviously the effects of extreme heat on vulnerable populations in particular, elderly people. So we suggested a whole range of different health impacts could occur. But of course, as the situation has moved on, we've also become much more preoccupied with what kind of action we need to take. Our knowledge has advanced, but the actions that we need to put into practice have not gone at the same speed. And so we're really facing an increasing climate emergency. And we don't know quite where it's going to end up, but it could end up it's been a half, three degrees hotter than pre-industrial times on global average as we reach the end of the century. We come from the land. And when we go back to the land, the land is so important. 
It has never been seeded or sold. It is such a precious resource. And back in antiquity, people recognised the value of land. They recognised that if you damage the land, you won't be able to grow your crops. If you pollute the waters, you won't be able to drink or to bathe and be refreshed and healthy and clean. And somehow the industrial world kind of lost sight of that, right? We really lost sight of that. And the diversity of the ecology has evolved over billions of years to provide this beautiful thing called balance. And what we are now is a world profoundly out of balance in every part of it. And the pillaging and absolute mass slaughter of anything that is of the land or comes out of the land is something that I know we will not be remembered well for in history. We are currently sitting in a very pointy part of history where at the moment we have got koalas crossing the roads in rather urbanised environments because we've completely broken their link to be able to eat and they're starving. They're the ones that survived the fires. You know, we are at the moment on the point at the end of extinction of so many species in Australia that it just makes your heart break if you think about it. That biodiversity was part of the unique balance in our world. The Creative Process and One Planet podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This podcast is created by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Max Richter's music featured in this episode was Spring One from the New Four Seasons, Vivaldi Recomposed, Vladimir's Blues from the Blue Notebooks, Lullaby from the West Coast Sleepers from 24 Postcards in Full Color. Music is courtesy of Max Richter, Universal Music Enterprises, and Mute Song. Associate producers on this episode were Sam Myers and Jamie Lammers. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. <laughs>